Hello and welcome to Potshot. I'm Alex Towles, and as I wasn't here last week, Collings isn't here this week, and so once again our able deputy, Mr. Sebastian Hund, has stepped over from the Yoga Bonito podcast to join us. Seb, your second Potshot appearance in two weeks. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. How are you? Not too bad, not too bad. So today we are going to quickly discuss the sporting defeat and the win against Palace, but we're not going to spend too much time on those games because the real point of today is to have a bit of a step back and a look at the run-in because we've got 10 games to go now, no Europa League, it's all focus on the Premier League, so... With the international break coming up, it just makes sense to take a step back and have a look at how we think the rest of the season is going to go for Arsenal. But before we get into any of that, we do have to start, unfortunately, with our loss to Sporting. Because I think a lot of people's perceptions of the run-in were going to change based on this game. I think I saw lots of people debating how our performance in the Europa League would affect their appraisal of our season. And obviously lots of people saying that, say, finishing second and winning the Europa League wouldn't have been a a successful season in their eyes, which is odd, but that's by the by. We won't have that chance regardless, because we lost on penalties to Sporting. 5-3 was the penalties after a 3-all aggregate draw. Seb, what did you make of the game overall uh, on Thursday? Because the general appraisal of the game seems to be that we weren't our usual selves. Mm, I don't know if I would go that far. I think a lot of the stuff that went badly, especially in the second half where we really collapsed for a good 30 minutes there, was down to sporting structure rather than our own deficiencies. I mean, our own deficiencies definitely play a part, especially losing two relatively integral, at least one very integral piece to the entire system in the opening minutes of the game. Obviously didn't help. I think the first 10 minutes or so were quite even before we were able to really establish a rhythm. I think Jorginho was pivotal in really taking control of the game and taking control of the ball and sort of giving our play the rhythm it needed. They did an excellent job of keeping uh, Zinchenko especially relatively quiet on his side. Um, and it was obviously Jorginho's pass that led to our first and only goal, as it were. But second half, especially the way they took our deep build-up away from us by really covering Jorginho and Zinchenko or later... Was it in the 45th or later? Where, no, it was 65th where Partey came on for Jorginho. Um, really created problems and we couldn't really get out. Um, sporting were far better in that period until we were basically having our first team on the pitch bar, Saliba, who went off injured, um, at which point Sporting's legs were starting to go. Um we definitely could have won it towards the end with sustained pressure at the top of the pitch, especially in extra time, but would have been deserved. I don't really think so, no. Do you think that we should have started with our 
strongest eleven then if it was if the game only really looked to be in our favour once we got our strongest eleven on the pitch? I think the strongest eleven on the pitch corresponded with them having a drop off from really putting everything they had into this game. They're fourth in the Portuguese division and really saw this game as an opportunity to salvage their season, which you could see by the way they engaged in every duel. <clears throat> but that obviously led to a loss of stamina towards the end. Um, I think the lineup we put out initially was fine. It's You can't criticize Arteta in the sense that he put out a weakened team to say that he didn't care about the game because the team we did put out was the sort of balance between having strong people in pivotal positions, i.e. putting Ramsdale back in for Turner, which was a big call after Turner's performance, and having Zinchenko there instead of Tierney, having Gabriel Jesus actually play from the start, mixed in with a few rotations. The main problem with the lineup as a whole was probably the setup profile-wise of the midfield three. That midfield three, of course, being... Jorginho at the base with Xhaka and Fabio Vieira in front of him. As the same midfield three that started the first leg, these problems that were apparent in the first leg as well, or is this? Uh, do you think the issues we saw today were new? I find it hard to compare the two games, um, considering multiple circumstances, especially in our own lineup that changed from the first and second leg. Uh, deep build-up wise with Kivio and Turner being replaced by Gabriel and Ramsdale, which obviously aids our build-up. But in general, I've seen Jorginho especially come under a lot of criticism, um, especially on the goal, which I found weird. If you look at the goal back, he wins his counter-pressing action and actually puts the ball through to Shaka and puts himself in a position to get the return pass. Now, the pass itself was a bit of a problem. Loose pass from Shaka, which then led to uh, Peter Gunkalvich being able to intercept and obviously pull off one of the better goals we've seen all season. I think the biggest miss in the entire midfield was having Odegaard there. Having him out just rids you of a lot of, first of all, pressing organization, which he's our chief organizer in that sense as well as just having athleticism, mastery of tight space control, and general sort of leadership up there, which we've lacked. I think having Jorginho, Shaka, and Vieira in there as a three in conjunction with one another is an issue in the sense that there's just a, an, an apparent lack of athleticism that you don't see if you put either Partey or Odegaard in there, which would then help to cover some of the deficiency the other two had. Having all three in there at once is just a bit of a problem. Let's go back to the goalkeeper selection, because on the pod last week you said, and Collins agreed, and I think I would have agreed if I was there, um, that we would be surprised if Turner was dropped for Ramsdale going into this game. Uh, that was the case. Do you think, firstly, do you think that was the right choice by Arteta? And secondly, um, given that last week you talked about how that might affect Turner's mentality negatively, if you will, 
Um, do you still think that might be a problem going forward? Obviously, hindsight's a wonderful thing in this aspect, but um, I was surprised, especially considering the game he played before he played the sporting game, which was unfortunate for him, uh, was the City game where he did actually look quite good and comfortable, especially with the ball at his feet. Um, I think the problems the selection causes psychologically, which obviously is conjecture, which we're putting upon him, is mitigated somewhat by the fact that we aren't really in any competitions where we realistically would use Materna. Like, we're, the, we're 10 games left in the season, all in the Premier League, all of which we would assume Aaron Ramsey will be starting. So, from that perspective, I don't really see the aftermath of it having an effect. And in the game, it's hard to say what would have changed significantly for better or worse. I think Turner actually has quite a good uh, quota in terms of stopping penalties, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I don't know the exact numbers, but I have seen... I did see some murmurings on Twitter about the irony of us dropping our penalty specialist goalkeeper yeah. for but the game in which if, if, if we go down that hypothetical rabbit hole, we would then have to say, would Turner have made the crucial stop with this head that Aaron Ramsdale did at 1-1 to even keep it at 1-1, etc., yeah. etc. Et so we would be going down hypothetical rabbit holes there, which uh, we shouldn't be looking to do. But yeah, I think a lot we'll of... We'll save the, that for later in the show. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be fun. Um, but yeah... It was surprising, but I don't think it will have any sort of ramifications as the rest of the season will go on. Lastly, on the sporting game and our Europa League campaign as a whole, my I, I can't speak for your Twitter timeline, but my Twitter timeline was oddly celebratory when we lost that game. Of course, there was frustration as to the manner of it, the fact that it went to penalties, the fact that we ran it that close. But I saw, like, like the majority of Arsenal fans were thinking, well, hey, no more extra games. We can just think about the Premier League. And not thinking, damn, this is a competition that we really had a big chance to win. What are your thoughts on our Europa League exit? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very individual thing to rationalize how you see the Europa League as a competition and the entire concept of having extra games. I mean, there's people who wanted to throw every competition except for the Premier League and people who think it's not the case. My personal thoughts is that my internal complacency clock rings off if somebody wants to rationalize losing a competition to gain an advantage in another competition. Um, and I'm personally also someone who actually respects the Europa League as a competition and actually finds it quite enjoyable. <laughs> um, so I was relatively disappointed when we went out. I do think, and it's obvious that we will gain some sort of advantage physically from not having Thursday games and having a better scheduled run-in as compared to Manchester City, who are still in European competition. Yeah, I think I agree there. I, I think I was a little, I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed that we're out of the Europa League because, frankly, 
I don't know when we're next going to get an opportunity to go really deep in the Europa League. We're looking quite good. Touch words, we're going to be going out in Champions League knockout stages in the next couple seasons and not really thinking about the Europa League and any opportunity for a club to win silverware that hasn't in quite a few years, I think, should be seen as something to be taken. And so I'm a little bit I'm a little bit sad that we didn't that we haven't gone further in the Europa League, haven't it it feels a little bit like wasted potential. Yeah. And I think there's quite a few players that will be sad to that we're out of the yeah. Europa League. And that's I think the biggest question that is popping up from the Europa League exit is how are the players that aren't currently in the Premier League boat and saw the Europa League as a chance to really be part of the group for the rest of the season, how they are going to be thinking about their position for the rest of the season. I I think we've seen in these last few months, granted these last few months, we've been playing Europa League football alongside league action and we've had those injuries, but I think there is more of a willingness from Arteta to rotate than there was at the start of the season. And I think these players that will be getting Europa League minutes, even if they're not starting, I think there's plenty of opportunity for bench minutes. For example, Kivior coming on for the last five in the game against Palace. Granted, five minutes isn't the full game that he got against Sporting in the first leg, but it's still something. And like, I don't think... I don't think these guys are just going to not feature at all in the run-in, apart from Turner, who I think touch woods won't feature at all in the run-in. Yeah. And that's I, th- I think the main question is, is more of how they perceive their own role rather than what their role mm. towards the end of the season will actually be. Because I think there are quite a few guys that are now looking around and thinking where their game time will be coming from. And if they will be part of the group, for the end of the season and even next season, it's questions that are now now that we're closing in on the end of March going to inevitably be asked by the players. Moving on to the Palace game, a much happier result all round. I think it's fair to say, as we won four one at the Emirates against Crystal Palace, a uh, Crystal Palace side that obviously sacked Patrick Vieira in the run-in. Not really going to touch on that because everyone else has. Justice for um, that TV. But <laughs> uh, it was fun hearing the entire stadium chanting his name. But there's a couple key points from the Palace game that we do want to touch on. Namely, obviously with Saliba out for the game, Rob Holding came in to cover. And so I want to quickly touch on his performance. How do you think he did? I mean, he surprised me with how well he did in the game as a whole. I mean, I think it's the game state and the dynamics he was involved in suited him somewhat, considering we broke Palace quite early on and were able to consolidate ourselves that way. And having athletic profiles around him in White and Partey to cover for his physical deficiencies. The noticeable thing was, though, that he fulfills an entirely different function to what Saliba would in our defensive line, which is obvious. I mean, we've all seen him, what he did to Son Heung-min last season, and generally his way of masking his own flaws has always been by jumping out of his hole and really quite aggressively closing people down. And 
I think we've gotten away with a few moments there. It's always going to be a knife edge, especially if you don't have a player who's comfortable at sweeping behind him, which Gabriel isn't really. It's the same problem we created last season when we put Ben White next to him, who's also a more assertive, um, interceptive, aggressive central defender who was go- pushing up, uh, which then constituted Gabriel sweeping behind or the other way around, which both weren't really comfortable with. It's the same problem if you put uh, Holding in there, plus the added uh, bonus of him not having the same recovery pace that Ben White has. But overall, his game was was good. He didn't really commit any major errors and was safe on the ball, but very secure and good on the ball. I think they were actually a few nice switches in there as well. So overall, can't really complain on the holding performance. I think the point you make about his aggression and how different that is to Saliba and how that might be an issue is a very, very good one. I think the Zaha chance, which came early in the first half, where he came down the left-hand side in transition and was saved by Ramsdale at nil-nil, that started because Holding jumped up aggressively, leaving the space in behind for Zaha to attack. So I think if we see more things like that, it could be an issue. But at the same time, we've seen over the course of the season that this team has the ability to adapt to different players' strengths and weaknesses as they come in and out of the side. So hopefully it's not going to be that much of an issue. I think the biggest question with him is how long we're going to have to do this. Yeah. Because having Rob Holding there against a Palace side that has just sacked their manager and come off a terrible run where they have had to play every European contender out there at an Emirates Stadium is quite different to having him play even just Leeds and then having to play um, at Anfield. Am I comfortable with him playing against Palace and having dynamics around him that help him? Yes. Do I think those same dynamics would keep him safe against Liverpool at Anfield? I don't really think so, no. Yeah, that's fair. Especially in transition. I think Saliba will be a really big miss for our transition defence. There are a couple times in this game where Palace were able to get at us straight up the gut, running between Gabriel and Holding, yeah. that I just don't think happen if Saliba's there. Um, like Either because he's a little bit more aware of his surroundings, looking behind him, being aware of what's happening behind him, or because of his recovery pace and ability to um, catch up and deal with these situations. I think on the ball, I was actually pleasantly surprised by Holding. Um, you mentioned that he was a little bit safer than Saliba might be, and that rings true. Um, I had a little bit of a look at the numbers to see exactly how well he did, and I compared his numbers in this game to Saliba's in the game we played away against Leicester. Uh, I picked that game because we had similar possession stats. We had about 65% of the ball against Leicester, 62% of the ball in this game against Palace, and Holding and Saliba's in-possession numbers are very, very similar. Uh, The biggest difference is that Holding completed 91% of his passes, whereas Saliba only completed 80%. Uh, but 
Saliba also attempted about 15 more passes than Holding did, so it actually averages out to about the same number of passes completed. They made the same number of long pass attempts, so those long switches that we see from a Saliba every now and again, Holding was also making. As you mentioned, they also completed the same number of passes into the final third. Um, four passes into the final third each across those games. Um, they also had a similar number of touches overall, with Saliba having 86 touches and Rob Holding having 85. So in possession, they're having a very similar role to Saliba, though perhaps he's playing it a little bit safer. But I, I think we've talked enough about Holding. Let's take a little look to the right and talk about Mr. Ben White, because... Before this podcast, before the games, uh, we've known Alex Colling wasn't wasn't going to be available on this pod for a little while, and so I asked him what he thought we should talk about, like right at the start of last week, before any of the games had happened, and he said that it might be worth talking about how Ben White's been on a little bit of a run of not so good form, how he was looking like arguably the best player in our back four, but over recent weeks he's been a little bit loose on the ball. Uh, and made some errors that have led to us uh, conceding chances, conceding big chances. But Ben Ben White dropped this game where he was one of our best players on the pitch, let alone in the back four. Um, Seb, what did you make of Ben White's game? Excellent. Um, I think the dynamics with, between him, Saka and Udegaard really broke down Palace's sort of dwindling, not so aggressive, not so committal mid-block, completely to pieces, um, especially with his probably on the training ground practice through ball between the central defender and the left-sided defender yes. through to an unrushing player, which we've spammed on both sides, actually, uh, to really, really create problems with the runs that either the aid in Odegaard or the winger in Saka slash Martinelli would create from those runs, which really just broke the team down. Yeah, I love that. That specific through ball between the centre-back and the left-back. We've seen that in, in the Palace game, we created two goals through that pass. Saka's cross for Martinelli's first goal came from a pass like that, and then Saka's goal himself came from a pass like that. I think, to talk about Saka's role in this specifically, I find it really interesting, really cool, how he's not just moving into those spaces on the run. We've seen him now a couple times in recent games kind of just stand off the shoulder of the left-back in their blind spot and just receive in that space and turn. He did exactly that to score his goal in the 4-0 against Everton, and he did exactly that to create... Martinelli's goal in this game and I just think I just think it's really cool we're like it's something that we didn't see earlier in the season I think we saw lots of him running into that space on the move but him just kind of floating into that space before the defenders are aware of him and then receiving and being able to turn quickly and cause so much damage is really really great it's just a wonderful combination of both his natural talent and the constant evolution we see with him working with Mikel and really gaining tools to his arsenal, uh, to his arsenal, unintended. Every time <laughs> we see him play. 
Yeah, it's very nice. I, I think to go back to Ben White specifically, um, I think he looks so much more fluid and so much more comfortable in those attacking rotations than he did at the start of the season. I think at the start of the year, we were talking about how he's really useful as kind of a more more conservative option on that side. Like, he'd stay back and just kind of be an option for a Saka or an Erdegaard to kind of bounce the ball off of um, earlier in the year. And as the season's gone on, he's kind of quietly got more comfortable taking a more active role in these rotations. Uh, and we've not really spoken about it until all of a sudden... On Sunday, we saw him making cutback after cutback after cutback after playing little interchanges with Saka or with Erdogan to get in behind on the overlap. It was really, really nice to see, and I think it adds an extra dimension to our attack. Definitely. If you just compare his assist for Thomas Partey in the first uh, Northampton derby this season, where he was standing in his role, playing the safety pass to the six to then have a shot and score to then him in this game overlapping and playing these really incisive through balls triangulated perfectly it really goes to show how far he's adapted to his new role to a point where we don't even classify him as a central defender anymore do we I think our rotations on both sides of the pitch were really useful actually um you mentioned earlier Palaces, not overly committal, not overly defensive um, mid-block. And I think it really shows how they were kind of caught in two minds. Um, McCarthy, their interim manager, said coming into the game that they wanted to be aggressive, that they wanted to come at us. But they also seemed to be shit scared of us and wanted to sit back in their mid-block. So it was kind of you could kind of see almost a clash between what they'd been told to do, which was to go out and press, and what they wanted to do, which was to be scared and hide in the low block. And it meant that we found it really, really easy to pick them apart through our rotations. I think all four of our goals are really excellent examples of this. Yeah. But I want to highlight the third, the Xhaka goal, because... You, what you see is you see Xhaka and Zinchenko swap, which moves Milivojevic out because he follows, I think it's Zinchenko, and then they swap back and then Xhaka makes the run and the ball comes through to him and there's a gaping hole where Milivojevic was. And I think just how easily we moved around Palace's block and picked them to pieces is really, really nice. Um, it's obviously partly a function of the fact that their mid-block wasn't so great, and I think if we were against a team more committed to that block to staying in shape, say, Bournemouth or Everton, then we would have been struggling more. But it's still something worthy of praise nonetheless. Definitely. And it's another great example of the importance of a player like Trossard having him in the team. Because mm. the, the specific actions we did for that goal wouldn't have really been possible had we still used Edin Ketia in that position. Because we didn't really see the third man runs from Shaka. We didn't really see him being able to stay centrally. The rotations were usually always the same. Moving Martinelli inside, Sinchenko inside, and having Shaka 
hug the touchline, putting him in positions where he couldn't effectively impact the game in any way. That being said, one of the things I did notice when um, when Jesus came on in the game is that he immediately rotated right and and Saka came inside, which is something I don't think we've seen Trossard ever do. Um, so obviously there's still room to improve there and hopefully Trossard will get more comfortable with those rotations and, well, frankly, hopefully we'll have Gabi Jesus starting again because that just adds another level to how amazing our rotations are. Definitely. But if you just consider Gabriel Jesus like the magnum opus of how our rotational game up the pitch should function, having Trossard there who can effectively do three quarters of his role has been extremely valuable as opposed to Edin Ketia who can fulfill some of the functions but has stifled our rotations a bit even though he did actually add some more goal threat than either of the other nines have in that time period. Uh, absolutely. I think with Nketia there, like his personal strengths and limitations of being a much different, much more traditional type of striker mean that we're forced to adapt our entire system, which is something that we talked about uh, on the podcast before, back when we were playing Nketia all the time, when Gabby was first injured before Trossard came in. Um... And having Trossard there now, he's definitely a much closer facsimile of Jesus, and it definitely helps us to stay closer to what I think is Arteta's preferred vision for the system. Finally, um, before we move on from the Palace game, though, there is one thing that's a potential cause for concern from this game. We conceded again from a corner that makes it three corner goals conceded in the last five games one in this game obviously one in the first leg against sporting and then one against bournemouth and it's been a running theme ever since christmas i'd say um obviously we conceded a corner goal against everton also conceded a corner goal against brentford like we've conceded lots of goals from corners recently should we be worried about this I think set-piece goals as a whole is a swings-and-roundabout situation where you're on a run of good corner defending and bad corner defending. I don't necessarily see a pattern in the goals slash chances we concede from corners, especially considering of those three that we conceded in the last five games, there were two keepers involved and multiple players defending in multiple ways. I'm not sure we're able to read into that just yet. I think it's more down to circumstance than anything. I, I think it's something that can definitely be improved. Yeah. Like, there's been conversation recently about how corners are kind of this untapped resource in terms of attacking potential, and how if you work really hard on your attacking set pieces, you can gain 10 to 15 goals a season from corners alone. But I think by the same token, if you work really hard on defending set pieces, then you should be able to do a very good job of shutting them down and not conceding goals from corners. Yeah. There's just always a, a a level of variance in there because you can't really influence the quality of the set piece taker you're coming up against that has a marketable influence on how dangerous set pieces actually are. You can't really grow anyone if you do actually have a team that's quite large and 
can effectively block you off to create set piece threat. Those are things you can't really influence. No, but you could say the same about any shot, right? Like, you can't affect how well they strike the ball, but you can position your defenders in such a way that it's a less effective chance. Yeah, that, that that's true, but set pieces are different in a sense because a cross is guaranteed to come into the box. Yeah. In in normal defending you would your first thought would be to cut out the cross entirely and create uh separation that way, but you can't really do that on set pieces. There's just a guaranteed ball coming into your box and in some situations if you don't have the same physical attributes or even if a ball just bounces weirdly there's nothing you can really do about it. That's why I'd say it's a bit more variance-based than other things happening on the pitch, but I'm also not a set-piece expert. No, no, I, I think we'll, we'll need to... Who is it? I think it's Gianni Vio, that guy that Spurs hired. Should we bring him on the podcast? He can tell us what we need to do better. I don't think his English is that good. I think we'd be better off just asking Nico Jover to come on and explain his rationale yeah. behind those <laughs> set-pieces. <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, so I had a quick look at the press conferences after the Palace game, and Mikel Arteta did actually touch on this. Uh, this is from the Arsenal website. We can improve on this by training more, by being conscious of it, and by not giving any hope to the opponent that it's a weakness. We have tried to train it, but obviously we didn't have a lot of time with the amount of games we have played in the last three weeks, but it's something that for sure we definitely need to do better says Mikel Arteta. So it's something that the club are clearly aware of and will hopefully take the next two weeks of not having any football matches to uh, drill into high heaven so it doesn't happen again in the run-in. That point also rings true considering our best offensive set piece uh, juice came at the start of the season when we just had a full preseason to work on those aspects and now being in the thick of things with midweek games. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. More time on the training pitch, less goals conceded from corners. Sounds good to me. Okay, so... We have played 28 games. We have 10 games to go. We're top of the league with 69 points, which is pretty nice. City are 8 points behind us on 61, with a game in hand. These are our fixtures for the remainder of the season. Leeds at home, then Liverpool away, West Ham away, Southampton at home, Man City away, Chelsea at home, Newcastle away, Brighton at home, Forest away, then finishing the season at home against Wolves. Ten matches that will define our season, 100%. That's just how this works. What Particular fixtures, Seb, stand out to you as places where we could trip up? I mean, there is an obvious cluster of a few games that will probably define everything we've done so far this season. Um, and it's obviously the Manchester City ho- away, Chelsea home, Newcastle away, Brighton home, back to back to back to back. It's a weak stretch. Yes. That is probably going to be defining on how we get through that, especially considering last season we had a similar cluster of games where we sort of momentumed ourselves into a bad run of form. 
and not just let one bad game be one bad game. If that sort of pattern were to crop up again, I think that could be defining. I think that's definitely fair. Uh, I think Liverpool away is another game that, while not in that particular batch of four, is definitely worth a mention, given that it's our second game back from the international break. So with where we are at the moment and no guarantees on when Saliba's going to be back, we could be weak in transition event defence going up against a side away from home that are one of the most lethal in transition in the country, in the world. So that could be fun. The sort of saving grace there is that Liverpool play Manchester City the week before, or not the week before, but they have their rescheduled game, then those two sort of cancel each other out, even though City's one is at home. But they've, in recent history, not really won many games with Liverpool. When was the last win they've had against Liverpool? 2021, away at Anfield, in front of no fans. In in the league, at least, there was the one Carabao Cup game they won against Liverpool, directly after the World Cup final, where rotational players were playing, plus Erling Haaland, who was just coming off a six-week training camp. <laughs> yeah, I, I am concerned about City, let's be honest. I can see them winning every single game they have left this season and just going on one of those runs that they tend to do in the back end of the season where they are absolutely indomitable. This worry has been exacerbated by the week they've just had where they pasted RB Leipzig and then pasted Burnley. Granted, Burnley are a championship side, but they're a championship side that are absolutely running away with the title. So they're probably around about a mid-table Premier League side. And if City are going to be just running around doling out pastings every week, that's concerning. Definitely. I've had a look at their run-in, and they have a cluster of games that also seems defining in the sense that they're games that aren't really suited to their style as such. They're playing Liverpool at home, then Southampton away, who since Ruben Sayers has been in charge of really been able to cause problems to a lot of big teams. Um, then if it's Brighton away, Arsenal at home, and Fulham away. So that five games for them could well be those where they are able to drop a few points. And towards the end of the season, they are also facing Brentford away, which only one big team has actually gotten points from, which is us. Yes, I, I think Brentford away is a very good spot there. Um, what was that, the penultimate game of the season? Um, it depends. It's their last game listed as uh, having a date. There's two uh, that need to be rescheduled, which are West Ham at home and Leicester at home. So it seems Brentford away is their last game. I think our penultimate game of the season could be a surprisingly difficult one. We're going to Forest away. Now, obvious point to get out here, Forest are really bad, right? They've got 26 points, but 20 of Forrest's 26 points have come at home. They are one of those teams that are just... They're a fine mid-table side at home, a really difficult proposition for anyone to face, and then just absolutely shocking away. So I think Forrest away 
on the second last game of the season, especially when Forest will almost certainly be in an all-timer of a relegation fight as it's looking like it's going to be. That's going to be a struggle. Yeah, I mean, especially considering their their home form against big teams has been quite good. I mean, the City game is an outlier there because they should have actually gotten pasted by City, but rode their luck a bit. I think a lot of the Forest game comes down to how that relegation fight actually turns out. There's a good chance that they're either going to be safe and on the beach already, or already relegated, which is less of a of a possibility, I think. But were they to be safe at that point, that game suddenly seems a lot easier. There are nine teams currently within four points of each other in the Premier League at the bottom of the table. If it's anywhere near that close with two games of the season to go, then not only is it an all-timer of a relegation battle, but Forrest will be right up for it because probably winning that game against us would guarantee survival for them, hypothetically, of course. That's how close it is right now. Um, If you've not been paying attention to the relegation fight in the Premier League, I would. It's very interesting. So of the run of death, I think the home games touch wood we should win. Chelsea have been better in recent weeks, but they're still nothing special, if you ask me. And Brighton, we beat them away, and I see no reason why we can't beat them at home if we've beaten them away already this season. Man City and Newcastle away, on the other hand, I think will be very, very difficult. Um, What do you... like? Let's leave City for a minute. Newcastle away. What are your thoughts? Mm. The Newcastle away game is probably the one I dread most, especially because it brings up the entire scars of last season, going to St. James's Park towards the end of the season again, especially considering Newcastle have lost three league games all season, as dodgy as anything, and at home are actually capable of attacking the other goal. So uh, that game is probably the one that is dreaded the most and probably predated the most by how well we do in the games leading up to it. If we can allow ourselves to drop any sort of points at that point. I definitely agree that the Newcastle game is one of the biggest worries. Um, We spoke at length on the podcast before about how they offered up an incredible defensive performance at the Emirates, but did literally nothing to try and attack us. And as you mentioned, they might actually give it a go in front of their own fans at St. James's Park. And that does worry me because they, when they do try and attack teams, they're actually quite good at it. And I think the stats have shown that Newcastle, when they do get on top of games, they stay on top of games. They are not the kind of side that will go into a lead and then sit back on that 1-0 and hold off. They will try and go for the jugular and really squash teams if they go ahead. So that's a worry. But hopefully we won't need to worry about it and we can pick up plenty of points beforehand and not have to worry too hard about that game. In particular against City away. 
it's gonna be rough. Yeah. We lost the home game, but we lost the home game at the back end of a rough period of form, after which we then picked and up And I think again. it's also safe to say that we lost the home game by giving City the most troublesome game they've had all season. Yes. Our play was as good as, if not better than City's, but they did not make any mistakes, and we did. If we want to beat City at the Etihad, we're going to need to go there and play perfectly for 90 minutes. Do you think we can do that? I think some of my confidence in us being able to do that comes down to how our, especially our back five, are fit coming into the game. I also think our disposition changes somewhat compared to the home game, in the sense that the home game was one where we wanted to send out a statement both in our play and in winning. I think we've seen this before with the Liverpool City title challenges, where the games against one another are games where both are conscious of how much is on the line, and those usually end up in both teams not wanting to lose rather than one team really going out for winning the game. And I think our disposition will be one of setting out not to lose first and foremost. Obviously predicated on how we do in the four games beforehand. If we are in a position where we are able to have this disposition, I think that will go a long way in sort of giving ourselves a bit of a comfort blanket. I agree, but my concern is that we've not seen this Arsenal team go into it go into a game with that mentality, I don't think. And so I don't know if we can do it, frankly. Like, I, I think one thing that we've done really well this season is we've not been afraid of any team that we've come up against. We've always gone at them and taken the game to them and tried to play our way. And I worry that going into a game with a change of mentality from we can win this and we should try and win this to we need to not lose this might negatively affect our ability to play good football. That might well be the case. I think it's more a sort of psychological disposition where the first thought isn't necessarily always an incisive action, but rather keeping conscious of not making any crucial mistakes, which in the home game, our first thought was more on creating incisive actions rather than really consolidating and controlling any part once we get into the final third. I think it's more swinging around that way. What we're going to do now is we're going to have a quick fire round where we pretend to be 538, the prediction system, and try and predict what games we're going to win and what games we're going to lose to come out with a final points total at the end of the season. Now, Seb has written his down. I have not. So this is going to be fun. I'm going to be coming up with this off the top of my head. But um, Leeds at home. I think three points. Three points. Liverpool away. What do you think? This, I think, will be one where we lose. 
that was my initial thought on this. I, I've gone with it a bit conservatively. I think both teams have the capability and will drop points somewhere. And I think Liverpool away is one where we will come up short somehow. That's fair enough. I don't think we'll lose that one. I think we'll draw it. I think I, I think our susceptibility to transitions will be balanced out by Liverpool's generally not being very good this season. And that will equal out to a draw away at Anfield. West Ham away. Three points? Three points, yep. Southampton at home. I'm conscious of Southampton, especially recently, because they've impressed me in quite a few games I've watched for them. I think the advantage of it being at the Emirates gave me a three points there. I agree. I'm going to put three points also. I'm not as worried by Southampton as you are. I have not seen... like Obviously, they've picked up somewhat under Sellers, but over the course of the season, I've not seen lots to worry me about Southampton. I've said this now, we're going to lose 1-0. Um, but anyway. Man City away. I've, I, I, I've already explained my rationale. I've gone for one point. I agree. One point. For me, it's a coin toss whether we draw that or whether we lose that. I think, yeah. I think we draw that one point. Chelsea at home. I think it's going to be more difficult than we think because Chelsea generally are better than we currently give them credit for because they've just gone on a really bad run. But I still think home at that point of the season, if we are in a good position injury-wise, I think three points. Yeah, I think it's a tough one for me. I think I'm stuck between three points and one point. But let's be positive and say three points. Newcastle away. I'll, I'm going to get out early here and I saying I think we're going to lose this one. I've gone for one point here. I think we're both going to be conscious of our disposition and mm. sort of even each other out that way. I think it would be frankly irresponsible of me to predict that we go unbeaten through the last 10 games of the season and if I were to pick one of these games where I think we're most likely to lose I think it's Newcastle away. That's fair. I've gone with the same rationale but I think Anfield is probably the most predicated place to lose. Yeah, that's fair. Next up, Brighton at home. I think three points. I've gone for one here. I th okay. think Brighton are exceptionally good, and I think they'll still be in with a shout to finish in any from what four to six, seven in terms of European mm. qualification. And... Our away game against them was quite frankly freakish because of a few early goals, putting that entire game into a weird state of constant transition. Mm. I think they will put up one of the better challenges in, I think, one point. I see the logic. I agree with logic. But I think with all going well, and by that I mean injuries-wise we will be a better team going into the game against Brighton at home than we were against them away, and we beat them away, so we should beat them at home. That's fair. Forest away. I've gone with a squeaky, squeaky three points here. I don't think it'll be pretty. I don't think it'll be anywhere near good, but I think we'll somehow escape with three. I can see this game going one of two ways. 
I think either we'll blow them out like 5 mil or we're going to lose 2-1. Like, I either or. And I'm being positive, so I'm going to say we win. And on the last game of the season, Wolves. Three points. Wolves are tough, but I think they're susceptible. And I think we'll win that. I think they'll be safe by that point, which also gives us an advantage. There's just too much quality for them to be. They're, they're on the higher end of the relegation fighters, and I think they'll pull themselves out by virtue of having individual quality and a relatively simple and good structure. So I think they'll be on the beach at that point and we'll get three points there. By the same token, I think a game at home to Wolves on the last day of the season would be so very Arsenal of us to not pick up three points. Uh, three points. I've said it. We'll win. So that means my total... I'm predicting that we finish the season with 92 points. I have 21 out of the last games, which puts puts us squarely on 90. Yeah, I think these are fairly fair appraisals. If we compare them to the 538 prediction calculator, 538 has us finishing on 87 points, with Man City finishing on 85. So that gives us a 56% chance of winning the Premier League and Man City a 44% chance, according to 538. My last question of the day, Seb. Over under 56% chance of Arsenal winning the Premier League, do you think, right now? I think right around 55 to 60. I think the the 8-point gap we have now, considering the one game that will balance that out is playing against Liverpool for Manchester City puts us in a position where we are favourites even though we've never been here before. I mean, I've, I've calculated this out real quick. Mm-hmm. And I have City finishing on 88 points. I'm just going to run through this. I had one point versus Liverpool, three versus Southampton, three versus Brighton away, one versus Arsenal, three versus Fulham, three v Le- uh, Leeds, three v Everton, three v Chelsea, and one v Brentford. That one can also be transferable to like the Fulham game. So I have them on eight wins and three draws in their last 11 games, which puts them on 27 points in those 11 games and puts them on 88 overall. So there is a margin of error there, even if City go on a really good run for us to, if all things shake out well, to, to see these 10 games out. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. I But I, I also think that there is there, there's scope for us to do better than we've predicted, right? We've predicted a lot of draws yeah. in that tough run. Some some of those draws we predicted could easily be wins. Some of those draws we predicted could also easily be losses. So we will see how the season goes. I lied ever so slightly. Um, I've not, That was not the last question. I've got my trivia book. Who was the first player to be sent off at the Emirates Stadium? A. Felipe Sanderos. B. Sol Campbell. C. Ivan Campo. Or D, Rio Ferdinand. Wow. So that would have been 2006. Yeah. I think this is probably the roughest question I've ever asked in this section, so I apologise. So who are the four... Was it four? Um, So Felipe Sanderos, Sol Campbell, Ivan Campo, or Rio Ferdinand? Or Ivan Campo, I don't know. I'm gonna go. 
Felipe Sanderos. Incorrect. The answer was Ivan Campo. Ivan Ivan Campo. Well, there we are. That's the first trivia book question wrong in quite a while, but I'm sure you'll be back again to give another crack. In my crack. defense, th- th- I- I'm a relatively young guy, so that's a bit before my time. Fair enough, fair enough. It's before mine as well. You've been dying by the book. But uh, thank you very much, Seb, for coming on to the show. Um, if pleasure. people, thank Yeah. If people want to find you, where can they do so? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Eulenberg or Eulenberg, depending on your pronunciation. And also uh, check out the uh, Bonito, uh podcast feed. We're doing a new one called Coffee House, where we take a look at sort of conceptual ideas and discuss them long format, or just more informal things on current happenings in football. Yeah, you, you spoke about this on the last podcast, but your most recent episode was an episode where you went through Chelsea right in the midst as they were coming towards the end of their horrible run, uh, and I particularly yeah. enjoyed your. Um, full-chested advocacy of Mason Mount to Arsenal. I'm 100% on board. I think this should happen. Especially considering the the signs are thickening that he will leave him. It's a good option. And reuniting him with his childhood friend at the Emirates, it's a nice one. 100%. 100%. I, I'm not so sure on the Declan Rice one. Uh, that might just be Alex Collins' influence, but I'm so for, so for Mason Mount at the Arsenal. That would be amazing. Anyway, thanks very much for listening. There is no Pot Shot Pod next week um, for two reasons. One, it's the international break, so there's no Arsenal for us to talk about. And two, I'm on holiday, so even if there was Arsenal to talk about, I wouldn't be here to edit our podcast, so it's just not going to happen. Uh, we will see you in two weeks' time, where hopefully Collings and I will be reunited once again. Thanks, Sam, for coming on the show. Thanks to James Blake for making our music. You can find all of his stuff on Spotify and related platforms. He's got an EP coming out soon. Listen out for that. We'll see you in two weeks' time. Cheers.